Annie began her uh, incredible sermon last Sunday with a very simple question that has haunted me all week. Her question was, have you ever felt like you're in over your head? And then she specifically talked about how being asked to preach that sermon made her feel like she was in over her head, which obviously she wasn't. But I thought about that question all week because there are very few times in my life where preaching makes me feel like I'm in over my head. Of, of course, it is an enormous responsibility where you are, you are held accountable to be faithful to God's word and you are held accountable to pastor the souls in the community well. And that's a, a sort of heavy responsibility. But I never feel daunted by the task of studying the scriptures and communicating them. Honestly, Christmas Day of this year will be my 29th anniversary of preaching in this church. I've preached probably over you know, a thousand sermons since that time. Um, in that, since that time, I've gotten a master's degree in theology and I'm working on a PhD in theology. By experience and education, I feel equipped to do this job. And there are very few times where I feel like I'm in over my head, except for a week like this one, except for a text like this one, where I will tell you flat up right off the bat, I genuinely don't have a clue what this story really means. And I honestly, when I first started grappling with the text, had no idea what God would want to say to our community through it. So buckle up. This is going to be fun. Let, let's remind ourselves where we're at in the process, in the story of the book of Exodus. It, when it begins in Exodus chapter 1, we discover that Israel has been living in Egypt for centuries, but more recently has been forced into a life and existence of slavery and has even been targeted by a campaign of infanticide by the Egyptian pharaoh who ordered all two-year-old Jewish babies, uh, all babies two and under that are male, to be murdered. One of those babies, we learn, was a, someone who would grow up to be a man named Moses, who was hidden and rescued by an Egyptian princess and raised in Pharaoh's own palace as an Egyptian prince over Egypt, but who was later exiled from Egypt for murdering an Egyptian who was mistreating a Jewish slave. As the text that we're looking at opens, Moses has been living for decades as a political refugee in a land called Midian and is just recently been met by God to go back to Israel or to Egypt and to be used by God to set Israel free from slavery. That's how the text opens in verse 19. It says, the Lord, remember the, all those caps means that's the name of God, Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt because everyone there who wanted to kill you has died. So Moses took his wife and his children and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. This story is the beginning of the return journey of Moses to Israel. He's been exiled and living in Midian. Now he's leaving Midian and going back to Egypt. And you see, if you read this text, which I hope you did before this sermon, when you read the text, you see that Moses is called by God to go back. 
He makes the journey back. He meets his brother Aaron in the wilderness. They perform some miraculous signs for the elders, just like the text that Annie talked about last week told us would happen. And everybody worships God because God is about to do something amazing for Israel. But right in the middle of that return journey, you discover this tiny little episode that I have no idea how to understand what actually happens. I'm going to read these three verses to you out of a translation by one of the commentaries that I study by a guy named Pete Enns, who translated this passage specifically to demonstrate just how confusing and ambiguous the story really is. This is what it says. Now at the lodging place along the way, Yahweh met him and sought to kill him. So Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son, and touched his feet, quote unquote. She said, quote, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Honestly, if any of you know what's happening in this story, I invite you uh, to press pause and just to preach to the people we're here at right now. I mean, there's so many questions here. You, you don't even know who the, the, the main character of the story is because it doesn't, it only uses Zipporah's name and it just says him and his. Like, you don't know whether God is angry with Moses or with Moses' son. And you have no idea why God is angry with them or what does bridegroom of blood mean? But it seems to be important. Um, how did Zipporah know that God was looking to kill somebody in the story? And, and how did she know that circumcision was going to be the way to solve the problem? And, oh, by the way, God is now a murderous maniac who's either going to kill Moses' son or who's going to kill Moses, the person that God just said, go back to Egypt because I need you to set Israel free from slavery. Like, what on earth is God doing in this story? Like, literally, none of it makes sense. And I, I think it's important to say that out loud, that this story doesn't make sense to us, and I don't know what it means, because that's just true of reading the Bible sometimes. I mean, the reason we're inviting you to read these passages as a group before you listen to the sermon on Sunday is because we want to ingrain our community in the habits of listening for God's voice in the words of Scripture. But when you do that, especially when you're a new reader of the Bible, but when you're a seasoned reader of the Bible, when you're a trained reader of the Bible, when you are a scholar in the Bible, every once in a while you come across a passage that is just impossible to understand. I mean, this story is written, you know, around 3,000 years ago by people who live in a different time in history, in a different part of the world, in a different culture, who lived by different customs, who knew some of the background details that we don't know. And that just happens. And I think for some of us, that becomes a daunting idea when we read the Bible. We just think, well, it's confusing, and we just stop. And here's what I would want to say. When you are reading the Bible, you come across a passage like this, lean in a little to see if you can hear God saying something. If not, don't feel bad about turning the page and just finding the next story and, and hoping that makes more sense. Because sometimes that's all you can do. 
because the Bible's a confusing book sometimes and it's hard to understand and that's okay. But I, I do have a guess about what's happening in this story. And here it is. I think in this story, God is angry at Moses because Moses is improperly circumcised, perhaps, and for sure because Moses' son is uncircumcised. That, I think, is the issue. Um, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, it says this, Any uncircumcised male in Israel whose flesh of his foreskin remains uncircumcised will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You have to remember that in the ancient world especially, male circumcision was the way that a Jewish family or a Jewish male would represent or symbolize their devotion to God and to God's people. If you were uncircumcised, you were not devoted to God and you were not living as a part of God's people. And so you were to be cut off from God's people. You get the little pun in the text. If you're uncircumcised, you're cut off, right? Like if you won't cut it off, I'll cut you off. That's sort of what God is saying. And that's that, that's central to the story is that God is angry because Moses was either not circumcised by his Jewish parents because they had to hide him away, or he was given an Egyptian circumcision by his Egyptian mother who adopted him. But either way, Moses was not circumcised in the Jewish way. And Moses' son, who grew up under a Midianite mother in a Midianite family in the land of Midian, he was not given a Jewish circumcision either. And, and God in the story was saying, you cannot go forward as a part of my people in relationship with me to execute my plan unless you symbolize your devotion to me and to my people. And so here's what Zipporah does. Zipporah somehow, who knows how, figures out that God is moving in to kill Moses. I don't know what that even means. But she recognizes what's happening and she understands that circumcision is the problem. And so she circumcises her son and then touches her son's foreskin to Moses's feet, which is a biblical euphemism for genitals. She touches her son's foreskin, bloody as it was, to Moses' genitals to transfer the spiritual benefit of circumcision from Moses' son to Moses. That's why she says bridegroom of blood, because it's a blood transfer to Moses. And then God says, okay, I'll accept that as a circumcision, because who's going to ask an 80-year-old man to be circumcised at this point? And you know what? Now that I tell the story out loud like that, the lesson for us seems obvious. Go and live what God is teaching us through the story this week. Let's pray. <laughs> now, I think there is a lesson for us to learn in this story. I think, I think that at its highest level, what God is saying is you cannot seek to participate. This is what Annie was talking about. God is inviting us to participate with God in the coming of God's loving justice into the world. And God is saying you cannot seek to participate in God's work unless you're willing to do it in God's way. 
right? We've talked often about how God is bringing God's kingdom into the world through Jesus, that God's love and justice is saving us and the world through Jesus and ushering in an era of increasing peace and joy and freedom and abundance and life. And God is inviting us as individuals and as a community to be a part of that love and justice coming into the world. But God is saying to us, you can only be a part, cooperate with me in my work if you're going to do it in my way. And so what is the way that God is inviting us to participate in God's work? Well, I said a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of John, I quoted the words of Jesus when Jesus says, I am the way. I am God's way. That if you want to know the way, what it looks like to participate in God's love and justice coming into the world in the Jesus way, just look at Jesus. And I think there are a few lessons we can draw from this story in that regard. First of all, you have to, like Moses, declare yourself to be a part of God's people, to be devoted to God in faith. Um. It is the, in the story, it is the blood of Moses' son, the spiritual benefit of the blood of Moses' son transferred to Moses that declares that Moses is a part of God's people and devoted to God. In our life, it is the blood of God's son, Jesus, through his death on the cross and the resurrection that transfers the spiritual benefit of us as we receive it in faith. And I think there are some of us who are new to this journey, who are checking out the Jesus thing, checking out the church thing, but for whom it is time for you to declare in faith that your life belongs to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I want you to by your death and resurrection, forgive me for all the ways that I haven't loved you and loved myself and loved the people around me and loved the forgotten and the ignored and the world and my enemies and the planet itself. Would you forgive me for not being a person of love? And would you change me to become a person of love, to put your faith in Jesus and to receive Jesus' love in your life and then to declare it through the act of baptism? The Jewish culture, they committed, they, they declared their devotion to God and to God's people through circumcision. In the church, we declare our devotion to God and God's people through baptism. And we've been, as a church, in conversation with public health to try and figure out together a way to do COVID-safe baptisms. And we're going to be doing those, hopefully, shortly into the new year. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, but you've never declared that through the act of baptism, just email baptism at southridgechurch.ca and say, I want to figure out with you how to declare my faith as Jesus' person. Now, some of us have done that. We've accepted the physical act of baptism, but we haven't really been living out our baptism. What the Bible calls our real circumcision. In Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes after Jesus, he says, true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. We're being invited to be circumcised in our heart, 
to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our lives in increasing ways look like the life of Jesus. And there are some of us who have declared our devotion to God, but if we were to be honest, we would say we're actually just living a life of religion. We're doing the external behaviors. We're going through the motions of being a Christian, but our heart really hasn't been in it. Or maybe there are some of us who have declared our faith in Jesus, but if we were to be honest, if you look at our life, you don't really see Jesus. You see us pursuing lives of comfort and luxury and greed, or you see us engaging in sexual sin, or you see us abusing substances or abusing relationships or not caring about the poor and the marginalized or about whatever inherent racism may be latent in our hearts. You just see us not caring about the things that Jesus cares about. And if that's you, God wants to change your heart by the Holy Spirit. So when people look at your life, they see what Jesus is like. And what Jesus is like is we find out in 1 John 3.16, it says this, this is how we know love. This is the way of love. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The way that God wants to transform us is into people who love the way that Jesus loved. If you want to know the way of Jesus, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. It is a life of self-sacrifice driven by love so that other people can experience the love of God. It's laying down our selfishness, our self-interestedness, our self-centeredness, and pouring our energy into seeing other people experience the love of God through our spirit-empowered sacrifice. God says, if you want to participate in my love and justice coming into the world, if you want to cooperate with me in my work, you have to do it in my way, which is the Jesus way. Fully devoted in faith to God and to the community, um, being transformed by the Holy Spirit so that when people look at our lives and our community, what they see is Jesus, which means what they see are people and communities living in self-sacrificing love. And anybody, this was Annie's point last week, anybody who's willing to go in that way can cooperate with God in God's work. That, I think, is the point of highlighting the presence of Zipporah in the story. I mean, she is a startling presence in the story in that she's the only named character, the only one that is honored and recognized as doing God's work in God's way. Zipporah... Um, this non-Jewish woman is the hero of the story, not Moses, who is God's chosen Jewish man, which is actually a pattern in the book of Exodus. That in this culture that is 10 times more patriarchal, 10 times more sexist, 10 times more racist and xenophobic than our culture is, even though our culture is bad. <laughs> and those patterns are latent in our hearts. That culture was overtly racist and patriarchal and sexist. And yet the agenda of the book of Exodus is to demonstrate the ways in which God uses women 
to move God's plan forward. At the end of chapter four, this is the sixth time that God has used women to make sure that God's plan to rescue Israel from slavery can go forward. Without the women in this story, there's no Moses, there's no Exodus, there's no freedom, there's no liberation, there's no salvation for Israel. And in fact, I, I uh, was rec- someone recommended to me a book called Defiant um, recently that tells the story. It's written by Kelly Nicondea, and it tells the story of the women of the book of Exodus. I encourage you, grab a hold of it, because what the presence of Zipporah illustrates is that God is eager to work through anyone, especially and including the most unlikely people, that God will use anyone who's willing to cooperate with God in God's way. And not just individuals, the whole community. If you've read the text, you know it's not just Zipporah, but it's Moses and Jethro and Aaron, Moses' brother, and all of the elders of Israel. There is a community of people who are devoted to each other and devoted to God to cooperate with God, to do God's work, to bring God's love and justice into the world. And friends, it's a picture of the church, this community of people who have received God's love through Jesus by faith, who are being transformed into the form of Jesus, the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and who are living together in solidarity with each other, this life of laying down their lives so that other people can experience the love and justice of God in their life. That's what God is inviting us to be a part of. And that's what we're going to celebrate this morning as we celebrate communion.